Adam Kuntz, the doctor, the reverend, and Jonathan Fisk, just the reverend. Uh, a Brief History of Power where two white guys already have had most of the show go by. We had the conversation. Now I'm hitting record. So we've gotten to a point where we know that education is one of the biggest problems now, communication, how do you learn what you learn, where you learn? The reason there's so much division and distraction and fear and anxiety is because there's so many different stories and they're conflicting and people don't know who to trust. And this is, again, about media ecology, as we've talked about. It is also about your philosophy. What's your epistemology? What are the words you stand on that you believe won't change, even though someone comes and shouts at you that they will change? And just in case that weren't enough, I want to throw a real gear in the wrench or a wrench of the gears. Yeah, wrench in the gears. Wrench in the gears, yes. All of this by throwing unions into the mix. A couple days ago, I saw a tweet. Oh, where did it go now? Now that we're talking, I don't see it. There it is. From uh, Phil Kirpin. I'm not even sure how this one came across my feed, but he says, CDC confessed to letting teachers unions overrule science. Outrageous corruption. <laughs> and then he's got uh, information from showing from this and highlighted stuff where the unions are basically out of fear, I think, or yeah. maybe just wanting to pay people to stay home. Whatever. They're abusing the system. Oh, education, unions. I don't know. You want to talk about real education today, and I figure that's a I good do. enough intro. Here we go. I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, but it is important to, to recognize that when people say education, they're usually thinking about the schooling system populated mm. generally by unionized workers who have degrees not necessarily in the subject matter most of the time, but in education and who are attaining a kind of, especially in Chicago and California that I'm aware of, a kind of bureaucratic excellence that should be commended in its own way. That is, <laughs> they are pushing their privileges as far as they possibly can because of COVID. And it is a it is a certain kind of excelling, even if they're not excelling at educating young minds, they are excelling at uh, attaining and retaining union privileges. So yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like the Old Testament prophets talking about, you know, that you have mastered the iniquity of drinking. Like you're better right. at it than yeah, anybody yeah. else, right? It may right. not be actually yeah. good, but we can say you've you've done a you've done a thing. You've yeah. done a thing. Yeah. And following on from what we talked about last time, I think it is helpful to recognize that when people think about education as either an academic discipline or just kind of a topic, you know, a tab on a news site, the fact that we're talking about a system is already something that is unnatural in the sense that when we're talking about education, when Plato, who, you know, I'm going to keep pushing because I, I love to push Plato, Plato is talking about something involving a soul. So it has nothing to do necessarily with a bureaucracy or a certain number of degrees that the instructor has at whatever level. It has to do with what is going on with the human soul. And so the discussion is much more about hmm what people might mean by religion or spirituality. Yeah, systems versus spirits. Can you even have that conversation in a secular age? Yeah, this has to do both legally and also just rhetorically with what spaces are actually carved out for talking about things within modern America that are particular to the individual. And one of the difficulties here is that even these sorts of things turn into memes. And therefore, people can reject them right away or accept them, but not think about them. So to give you an example that would have to do with the notion that the soul has its own ways that need to be respected, the concept of religious liberty, right? Why does that exist, right? That exists in American history, specifically coming out of the fact that there were state churches 
I think openly, I think there are still state churches, but there are openly state religious establishments in colonial New England. And Roger Williams, among others, rejects those and says, no, the soul, if God intended the soul to be dictated to by the state, he would have made the soul really the same thing as the body. This is, this is just a, a subsidiary argument that Williams makes. But what he's saying is the soul has its own liberty that is necessary to it. That means that if I don't let the soul work things out for itself, right? This has to do with uh, a certain Protestant understanding of man. If I don't let the soul work those things out for itself, then inevitably I will warp both the state, which will try to claim jurisdiction over something it can't, and I will warp religion because religion, instead of persuading the soul through the proclamation of scripture, all this is all specifically Protestant, instead of persuading the soul through the proclamation of the word, I will be forcing the soul into something of which it's not even actually convinced by the word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. This yeah. also has to do with something that we're talking about on the Discord channel right now uh, involving equality, but it really is that whenever you're thinking about early America, if you don't understand English-speaking Christianity, okay, if, especially if you're Lutheran, please don't call it Reformed because you're just going to hate it, to start off with, you have to go into it a little more neutrally. If you don't understand it, you really don't know what's happening in early America because mm. the number of actual actual professing deists is very small. And even when they're arguing politically, they have to be accepted by people like, say, Patrick Henry or James Madison or Roger Sherman, who are professing Christians, not to speak of the population, <laughs> which is in modern terms, fundamentalist Protestant Christians, almost overwhelmingly. So when you think about concepts like liberty and equality and stuff like that, remember that this is this is all happening in an America where a concept like education goes along with a biblical idea like covenant having to do with the law of God. So the history of education in America is intimately tied in its beginnings to the notion that the Protestant notion that the human soul needs to be taught the law of God, the word of God, so that it can understand what its duties are. That's way different from, you know, I don't want to go back to school. So COVID means that I only have to have the school open twice a week or maybe never. It's oh, totally different. Th- uh, you said a lot of stuff there. I think the, yeah. the most stunning thing you said is that you cannot rightly interpret the Constitution of the United States without an understanding of Christianity's influence on it, I think. I think you made that case, uh, that in the context of what America was at that time, the very idea of the freedom of religion has to understand what Christians mean by the word religion. Yeah. It yeah, has yeah, to be defined yeah. that way, right? Um, so I think that's stunning. I'm not sure I, I want to follow that. Everything being a slogan is something else that you've kind of yeah. pushed us into, and that's where the argument, debate, fight club, I love it, on Discord uh, has been about. Uh, we kind of got into this about, I, I said something somewhere where I rejected liberty as a word or something, right? <laughs> yeah, the guy's right, off the right, cuff, yeah. me being yeah. me. And, and we get into this thing, and I'm trying to make the case, well, the way that phrase is used by everyone right now, no one thinks what you're trying to say it means is what it means. You yeah. want everyone to go sit in the classroom and learn what it means so that we can all change our minds. I don't disagree with you. I just don't think anyone's going to do that. And so I'm saying it now long, no longer means what it used to mean, but it's been sloganized. And as you say, everything's a slogan. Now everything can be dismissed. Now nothing's yeah. meaningful. We've really diminished language. Yeah. I, I, what, what I'm saying is everyone who is, you know, let's say listening to this podcast or in your local congregation or something does need to understand what 
that group means by liberty or equality. And that has to be sussed out and debated and understood there because we can't live only by slogans, even if they're really good slogans. What the, the, the way in which I completely agree with you is the process of education happens inside an atmosphere of openness and safety. Okay, which is why you can't really get an education at most educational institutions in the United States mm-hmm. currently. Okay, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing just because I agree right. so much. <laughs> right, 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 right. The way you said it was, uh, yeah, sure. So, <laughs> so education can still happen in places where openness can happen, and a person can make a mistake, or be mistaken, or not, or or take the time to be understood better, or to understand better. That is not what is happening. Our education system, as we're talking about with the bureaucratic excellence of the California teachers or lots of other institutions and groups, our educational system is the re-education camps you've all been worrying so much about. Right. They're already here. You don't have to understand that our system is a very soft system. It does not want to do things in a hard way. And some of the things that we'll be talking about next month kind of finding stuff that's going on right now with the nascent uniparty government that has, you know, taken power and put up permanent fencing. You'll see places in the 90s, the 80s and the 70s where they went hard, but they do that very rarely. And it's not generally how they affect change. They affect change in a soft way by taking power over something that you kind of it's understood you have to go to. And even though my children don't go to that system, I still have to pay for it through taxes. That's right. That's right. That's what a state, that's what a state church is. It shapes your soul, whether you want it to or not. And if you don't want it to, the least you can do is pay for it. Well, that was my point about the secular age, secular age earlier too, though. That's been the story is that there is no soul shaping going on in these institutions. They are strictly body shaping or, or education shaping, mind shaping. Sure. There is no, but there's no like spiritual edge to this. Uh, the, the reason our kids are depressed has nothing to do with what they're doing all day. It, it strictly has to do with the need to give them more pharmaceuticals or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah. I want to go back just to the slogan thing. I completely sure. agree. We can't live by slogan. I'm not advocating we should try to live by slogan. Mm-hmm. I'm saying we got to acknowledge we live in a world that lives by slogan. And most yeah. people you talk to are sleepwalkers who live by slogan. And when you yeah. tell them they need to stop and learn, they're not going to. So if you <laughs> would like to live in a different world, you need to create a little bit of space where those conversations can begin to happen with people who want them. But right. be ready for most people to prefer to stay in the concentration camp. The Matrix, the movie, The Matrix, it's not that different. You get out, you realize it doesn't taste as good, you want back in. Some people go. It's it it and thank you for pointing out the education system being the concentration camp system. That is just so pristine. I think that's leveled up casino to a whole nother level. The metaphor (laughs) the metaphor is literally through the roof. Well, yeah. So, I mean, in order in order to be in the casino, I mean, it used to you be have to send your kids to, to the concentration. Camp. Right. Right. You have to attend diversity, inclusion and equity training on a daily basis. But then you also get to go play roulette downstairs. Right. Right. And or or you will, watch your kids you, play, you know, near on Olympic level sports, kind of. And yeah. hope to be that, you know, as they right. then prepare for more reeducation and then. Uh, what, what did they call it in the ancient world when they would migrate you to somewhere else? They they split up the family and they'd make you live over here and your kids live over there so your culture would fall apart. That's how a series is. What's that called? That's like? called, that's called, it's called losing a war. Yeah, right, right. Well, exactly. But there's like... <laughs> 
There's like the a men, term. There's a all term the men are for that. killed. All the men are killed, and the women and children are sold into slavery. Yeah. That's called. That's yeah. what happens when you lose a war. Right. So, so what I'm what I'm saying is yeah. that our our uh, postgraduate system is effectively yeah. doing what the Assyrians would do to the peoples they conquered. To the Israelites. Yeah. 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 Totally. We're well, just loving it. And and I and I think the the idea that like oh they're going to put us in camps or or like something horrible is going to happen in the future. I'm not saying that's wrong right let's be clear if we resist right right Right. i'm not saying that's like wrong i'm not saying i'm not going to die in a violent manner against my own will okay what i'm saying is they don't need to do that because they've already accomplished it through a combination of the quote education system and the media so they don't necessarily need that because if your population is already going down and people aren't forming families, you're accomplishing what full-on war would have to do in a more brutal way. Hmm. So why would you why would you invest the energy using your grossly obese National Guard troops we saw guarding the inauguration? Why would you try to send those people to war when you could just force kids to get, you know, puberty blockers and make sure that they were being told to hate themselves. <laughs> you don't you don't need to go to war. You're already accomplishing the same cultural and demographic goal by other means. Education is not mere information and it's regurgitation, the fallacy of credentialism. Quote yeah. Jill Biden, I think she I bought has, this degree. Well, it's a doctorate of education. I yeah, think I that's what she has. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's right. But the idea, the the kerfuffle that that happened largely on Twitter. So if you're not on Twitter, or you don't watch Twitter, I'm not on Twitter allegedly. Um, <laughs> if you don't know what's going on there, then that's fine. What happened was people were questioning the interest, the validity, the coherence of her amazing dissertation on student success at community colleges which she got explicitly because she was tired of seeing mail come to Senator and Mrs. Biden. And that that's going to play in. Just remember that little nugget because it's mm. going to play into next week when we talk about the family and what the family is and what it needs to be. So repeat Mrs. that a little bit and, and, and weave that into the story. So, so Jill's yeah. sitting at home. She's married to this guy. He's been a senator for 30 years. You know, things <laughs> right, are whatever. good. Yeah. Um, but yeah. man, it's Senator and Mrs. Biden. All I get is that MRS. Yeah, mm. yeah. Why would you want to be just, just Mrs.? The family is not a goal anyone has. It kind of happens by accident or biological force. You get grandma's so wet. To, so I need to get a degree so she gets a doctorate of education, which is a professional degree. And so she's Dr. Jill Biden, and you better call her Dr. Jill Biden. And then people all over Twitter, some seriously, most of the people that I read in jest were putting up numerous degrees after their Twitter name to show that credentialism is alive and well in America. So so did she just do this recently, this degree? Or has this been, this is an older, I don't know. An older within... kerfuffle? Well, the kerfluffle was because people were making fun of her saying, look, this is not a your your pedestrian observations about what makes a good community college student should not be called scholarship. Exactly. Right, like, right, right. Who cares? This is a denigration of the intellect to say that this these observations are interesting to anybody. Given what we've been talking about recently, about uh, the the level of lying that has become required yep. acceptability in the culture that there yep. is. Uh, 
there is education to some extent is teaching you how to not ask the questions and to mm -hmm. ignore what's going on. Right. So again, then education is not even a thing at this point. There, there is no such thing as the old idea of say enlightenment or the awakening of man, which has yeah. to again do with this soul idea that you're not just a body, that there's something right. spiritual about you. And hence my question, a secular age, yeah. uh, I don't know. I'd like to have an atheist get on and talk with us about this. I don't want to bash a straw man, but like, how can you now look at this society and advocate a godless world? How is it possible to advocate a spiritless society? At the very least, you must say that man has evolved from matter to be a spiritual creature. You have to, you have to acknowledge that there's something else going on. Yeah. And whether you want to say this is deism or whatever, but for me, this is like a philosophical issue for the culture. We've been running on the fumes of we can take God out of the conversation. We can take spirit out of the conversation. Leave, leave it out of spirit. We can take spirit right. out of the conversation, build a society, put a bunch of gears in place, and it'll run like robots. But yeah. we're men. <laughs> we're not robots. And it's killing our insides and our families and our children and all that. To me, education then is beginning to see that problem and untie that knot, really. And certainly, I mean, if we just right. want to bash the school system, that's not going to achieve it. But what do we do? Always is our question, right? Yeah. And and uh, I think that for the listener, it's probably more helpful not to think about, like, how do I feel about, you know, public education generically? But you want to think about at any level or kind of education, it, <clears throat> is this something real? Is, is, is anyone actually learning anything significant about God or man? or nature, or is it really just a cargo cult, right? Cargo cults happened in the Pacific, especially around the Second World War, when people would dress up like American soldiers, hoping on their isolated Pacific Island to get back the, literally the stuff like the Hershey's chocolate bars that American soldiers in the Second World War would bring to the island when they landed in order to stage you know, battles against different Japanese mm -hmm. outposts in different islands. And the cargo cult is dressing up like that or trying to build, you know, an air control tower out of sticks in order to get all that stuff back. But it it is a poor facsimile of the real thing. And that's what you're looking at when you're looking at, for instance, a word I used earlier, credentialism, which is just a fixation on degrees or titles or certificates, which you find in all kinds of realms of life at this point over something that you have, to use another example, earlier in American history from people who have very little, we would call it formal education. I would just say schooling. Hmm. And there's a distinction here between schooling and education. They had plenty of education, not a lot of schooling, but they had enough, let's say, math to invent all kinds of things in isolated villages. They had enough, let's say, reading and writing to come up with their own religious ideas. Now that's good and that's bad, but they knew the Bible really well, which is generally good if you're a Christian. So when you're talking about education, I would keep it separate in your mind from schooling because schooling can go on because it's a kind of, it exists really in any setting in America at this point as a sort of a certain size of bureaucracy, even inside church bodies. It's a kind of its own bureaucracy with its own momentum separate from the notion of education. Right. So you're kind of advocating that we would talk about the public schooling system and Lutheran education, say in our circles, right? And we would we would keep those right. as completely separate terms. There is no public education. There's public schooling. 
and then you have right. Lutheran education. I love it, especially as a basketball player, because schooling is when they just they make you feel like an idiot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's great. Yeah, right. And and there's also an element, you know, that that element of humiliation common to basketball and public education for cisgender people, Christian people, white people, hmm. male people, assorted people who are not in this or that protected class, that element of humiliation is really what is ramping up. But if you were in certain kinds of schooling before 2020, you were very familiar with it. So it's really just becoming more open, but it's always been about humiliation and re-education. Hmm. Unprotected class of people. What an interesting thing. So... <laughs> Let's tie this to Yankees now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, and I like to use Yankees partly to call attention to my own ethnic group, because why not? We're all doing it these days. But really, because I think that part of the tragedy of America is a failure to recognize how big and how diverse it always has been. So I'm saying even about, uh, you know, 90% Anglo-Saxon, probably roughly 98% Protestant America in 1784, you're still dealing with an incredibly, in terms of education and difference among souls and life experiences, an incredibly diverse place. And I, the, the tragedy of public schooling is that it is a system invented by and for Yankees who all have a certain bent toward education as a process that everyone recognizes, even before what they called common schools or village schools, what we think of as like a one-room schoolhouse, right? So this model gets exported across the country as the country grows. They have a bent towards that that everyone recognizes from the first, even in places where you don't have a state church in New England. And I think one of the really unfortunate things about American history is that Yankees often lack at all kinds of times from the advent of common schooling nationwide in the 19th century to the imposition of prohibition in the 20th century, they often lack self-awareness about what other people groups are willing to handle or interested in even having. But that doesn't stop them from exporting it. And you find this with everything from this shape of public schooling to prohibition, especially. And so what I find, if you look at the history of public schooling, which we've talked about, and we've talked about Dewey before, is that whenever you look at the history of any of these movements, the temperance movement, public education, women's suffrage, all kinds of movements, they're going to start either in New England proper or in kind of greater New England, capital G, which is a historical term for places like upstate New York, Anglo-Saxon people in Michigan or Wisconsin, and they'll get something started and they'll all be on that bandwagon really quickly. And this happens with public education. And then anywhere they go or anywhere they have power over, such as the South after the Civil War, they're going to impose a lot of these things and they'll be accepted to a greater or lesser degree. So Southerners really weren't interested in public schooling. Germans really weren't interested in prohibition. Okay. And sometimes these projects fail and sometimes they don't. But something to notice is that American bureaucracy is built in order to accomplish projects that big and that weird to large sections of the country because it was built by and for Yankees to accomplish projects that big and that weird, such as 
public schools everywhere for everybody mm-hmm. that everybody has to pay for. Yeah, out of many one. I mean, it's 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 the yeah. it's a vision that's been there from the start, regardless of where you think it came from or what kind of cultic conspiracy you want to tie to it. I don't yeah. think that's crazy to say. What what's crazy is that none of us know it. Yeah. No, it's yeah, not crazy well, to say. It's crazy that we don't see it. We pretend like we're all completely on the same kind of level playing field. And well, that's right. the story they've told us to believe. So yeah, go right. It. And I, I think one of the things that that masks is something that we'll talk about some point at some point in the future. But it is probably the explanation for why people are not aware of this is that Yankees as a group, and I don't by that, I don't mean like just people from the north. I mean, like a particular kind of colonial New England type people who spread all over the country eventually, and found most of our state universities in most of our states, for instance, is that as an ethnic group, they, they decline as a percentage even within New England, let alone nationwide. And the New Deal is really important in kind of deposing them as an ethnic group from power, because the New Deal puts together a coalition that excludes Protestant Northerners per se. But it takes uh, that, their same system, their same vision, correct. their same the goals. Machinery, right. Yeah. The machinery is all still there, right? So if they build machinery for public education being something in all 50 states, regardless of what, you know, let's say the state has tons and tons of Catholics, doesn't matter. It still has a public education system, mm-hmm. you know, that machinery still exists in the same sense that machinery for carrying out large foreign wars still exists, even though the Second World War and the Cold War are over, right? And so that is there for the taking, for people to use. And what has happened with public schools, especially, is that that machinery, which if you go back and you look in the 19th century, if you're going to quote public school, okay, and you're a Lutheran, yes, you're losing Lutheranism. But you're going to what is effectively, if you look at the curriculum, a non-denominational Protestant school. Mm-hmm. That's what you're going to in 1893 on the prairie somewhere. Yeah, just Christians. Yeah, right. That machinery, though, is now used for the same purposes of indoctrination, such that the critiques of some of our forefathers and our tradition about public schooling in the 19th century apply really way more than they used to, which was you're going to lose your children if they mm-hmm. go to public school. Now, their argument was your kids are going to grow up and they're going to become Methodists. You know, <laughs> heaven forbid, would, right? Would that it were the case these days, right? <laughs> the worst thing that could happen is that my kids become Methodists. Like, okay, you know, not optimal, but like, at least they, you know, at least they go to yeah, heaven. No. I mean, Harry Krishna just, you know, it was just a little further down the road. And so I, right. I was happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, don't, right. I, don't, I Honestly, I don't know that I want my kids to become Methodists. I'll be quite No, I don't either. For, but... for the record, but... Your point right. being, like, they were worried about not societal collapse. That Correct. was not their worry. And we're like, yes. oh, look, it's not just that we're going to lose our institutional religion. It's the whole right. whole box. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you might lose your son because your son is going to be taught that if he really wants to be accepted, he needs to be some kind of minority. And because your son is white, the only kind of minority he's ever going to be able to be is to become trans. <laughs> you know, yeah. Those are the right. only... Those are the heroes that he has. His heroes are always minorities. So in order to become a minority, he has to become trans. That's the only way to be a worthwhile moral person is to be some kind of oppressed minority. So now, so th- this makes me want to push back on nature. So, so the very zeitgeist of the moment is you have to be something you're not. Yeah, right. Huh? If you're yeah. a minority, you can't even be that. 
you have to overcome it, right? You can't you can't be the minority who is where you are. You have to become some other un- unoppressed version of yourself. Yeah. And so it's like this ultimate discontent, uh, which I guess keeps the malls open. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think that's a good point too because if you are black or you are a woman, you have to be politically self-conscious and activistic about it. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't just be, right? And the 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 issue here is that if we had a schooling system that were oriented towards the discovery of nature, I'm just talking about did they teach kids how to identify the birds that are around them, for right. instance, or the trees that are around them, which they don't. If it were oriented towards those things and an acceptance of nature, it would be enough to be who you are without having to make a political cause out of it. Everything is sublimated in in our schooling system out of nature into something that is politically useful to the regime. Yeah, brand That's slogans. That's what our children too. are taught. And brand slogans, yeah. right? Right. And so right. your pain to be the carrier of someone else's message so that you can feel like you are someone. Yeah. That's kind of, we were talking, this is some of what we were talking about before the show that I think is worth maybe saying here. Uh, the the common need for permission to have an idea and therefore mm. the inability for, of independent thought amongst a yeah. vast majority of Americans. Yeah. Now reading we might advocate enables you to have ideas, not only that you read, but that you could intuit further, right? There, there's a yeah. development of that, but it would yeah. seem that is we're in a famine of that kind of right. wisdom. Right. Yeah. And, and that is the, the relationship of that to education is, is actually something that, is not even on the table for debate anymore, but I really think should be in the sense that common schools were not necessarily compulsory schools. That is, if I live in Vermont in 1810, there is a school that I support through my taxes, but it's the same sense in which I support a library. Right. So I don't have to take books out of the library. I don't have to send my kids for a certain number of days every year, but in the general interest of my neighbors, I support books being in the library and a schoolmaster being in the school to teach reading, writing, arithmetic, geography, and something right. about American right. history. I want my neighbors to be able to read the street signs, man. They got to stop. Yeah. You know, yeah. All that stuff. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm fine with that. And it's under my control. It's not. Notice that one of the really big differences, and, and this is all carried out sort of the same way they still call this place America, but it doesn't look at all like it did in 1790. This is all carried out under the name of public education, but now you have to go. Mm-hmm. You have to go. And depending on your state, if you don't want to go and you want to homeschool, you have to basically apologize on an annual basis for each of your children to the state mm-hmm. for the fact, with their approval, that you're not sending your children there. So the notion that what is common must also be compulsory is a big change. Also, the notion that when you go there, you're not supporting someone whom you know, who in early America often is supported in the houses of the locals himself, because he's generally a young man, is the schoolmaster. But you're paying for a bureaucracy that is managed by a couple different national unions. And you don't know any of those people. You don't know the professors at the state college that these teachers went to. You don't know what they teach. You don't know what they say. And they're embarrassed enough by what they teach and what they say that when they go totally online in 2020, they have some anxiety about the fact that you're going to actually know what they say. (laughs) 
So instead of really having any control of any kind, if you even go to a school board meeting, they may take video of you and ridicule you for being whatever you are, probably racist, that's an effective word, for objecting to anything that they're saying. So this is all, this all goes under the same name as public schooling or public education as it did in 1810, but it doesn't resemble it at all. And especially the notion that this is compulsory. You must be educated. <laughs> you know, that's when they got us is when it had to be the case because yeah, yeah. now you have to listen. Yeah, resistance is futile. Yeah. Star Trek has an episode for everything, even though Star Trek's really not worth watching, honestly. Uh, Doctor Who is far more worth it, but even then, turn the TV off and read a book. Uh, man, you, you gave me a really big thought there a moment ago, and but there were so many other good things you said. Uh, the only thing I wrote down was the schoolmaster and the young men comment. Every every TV show I've ever seen is a schoolmistress, it's a school marm. And that's got to be on purpose, given what you just said, that the actual history is the opposite of that. Yeah, and, that's it's it's like uh, if you watch like a, a movie or a TV show about the Middle Ages and they have like a token black guy or something. It's kind of like that. It's like, yeah, I suppose it's like literally like possible that somebody wandered from some Saharan Africa into medieval England, but it's not very likely. And yeah. it's very similar if they show you, uh, you know, if they show you education in early America, because women teaching school is something really that's only happening for very young children and very exceptionally. If you look even at the normal school movement, <clears throat> which was kind of the first systematized teacher training. And, uh, you know, this is, we're talking like 1830s. It's, you know, that, that started by a pastor, by a congregationalist minister. And the schools are definitively teaching the Bible. That's really how they teach reading. You use the Bible to teach what the letters mean, and then you can read the Bible. That's what they do. His lectures on his basically sort of, this is how you run a school book, lectures on school keeping are addressed specifically. Every lecture starts, young gentleman, comma, and then hmm. he goes. Hmm. There's a final lecture to women that Samuel Reed Hall, that's his name, gives. But that final lecture is, you know, in the exceptional case that there are women teaching school and you're only going to teach school until you get married, because guess what's way more valuable than teaching school raising kids is having a family yeah, yeah. kids are right. really important to the future I, I i believe the children are the future teach them well and let them lead the way uh whitney houston i think is the one who's saying that so <laughs> well uh, I, I agree she's not wrong right she's not wrong I don't, yeah no i i don't know what i'm talking i'm out of my depth here but i do agree that this is why education is so important because education is going to happen even if we didn't have a schooling system hmm. right because man mimics what he sees. Yeah. He imitates. Um, and, and the go, children on. go on having spirits or souls. They go on having those things and having emotions and needing to understand the world. That all happens whether or not there's a schooling system or they're sent to it. Or if they are sent to it, most likely, graduate of public education myself, if they are sent to it, whether or not they learn anything there. Everything I feel like I actually learned with maybe a 5% exception, 95% of what I learned growing up was kind of in spite of or aside from yeah. schooling. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think I think time tables and sentence diagramming did me well, but we probably could have handled all that <laughs> yeah. in like three months, I think, if we just really buckled <laughs> right. in, right? There was right. a lot of time spent doing other stuff, and I don't mind completely wasting my life, although maybe, maybe I do. I want to get back to, so let's say, well, yeah. there's two things there. Okay. Yeah. 
as a homeschool family, when we first started homeschooling, I remember there was like a FOMO, a fear of missing out mm-hmm. level of it. Like, well, what if we don't teach them this? What if we don't teach yeah. them this? We have to teach. And, and when yeah. we get involved with homeschool communities, which we don't anymore, usually they're just overwhelmed by fear of missing out. It's like we're in homeschool mm-hmm. so that we can teach them everything there ever was to learn all before they're 10. And, yeah. and I don't know that that, that is, I don't, want, I don't want to condemn it per se. What I want to condemn is that fear of missing out education. And what's been helpful for us is we get away from this need to dissect all the information to all these categories you have to memorize and instead inspire our kids to discover what the natural world has to offer. And they yeah. educate themselves at a certain point. It, they just take over. It's such a different way of looking at it. So it's been very good for us. But I, what I'm saying is anyone's out there, that fear of missing out is a real holdback. Push through it. They need to yeah. read. They need to write. They need to count. And then after that, they should be nice, not nice, kind people, virtuous yeah. people, right? And then from there, show them the world. They'll, they'll find amazing things. If you're a parent who's a homeschool parent or a parent who's a parent that wants to stand against the public education system, so you're on the school board or you're in a school board meeting and you're in that position you mentioned a while back where you're being ridiculed for yeah. who you are, right? what's your course of action? Your course of action is to... I mean, if you're in, if you're still inside the public schooling system, to fight for whatever carve outs you can. I mean, that is my recommendation, really politically, for any realm of action in modern day America. Is you are looking for carve outs. That means that you are looking for space to do and be what you know you ought to do and ought to be. You're not looking for anything bigger than that. You don't need to fight to like save America. So if you have carve outs, like let's say you have a gifted education program and that really benefits your child or you have an international baccalaureate program, let's say in, in, in your high school, right? IB is going to be attacked and is being attacked in many districts for being racist because whites and Asians test into it and remain in it at much higher percentages as with standardized testing over blacks and Hispanics. We can do the whole Steve Saylor debate about IQ another time. That's just those are the stats. That's why it's being denounced. International Baccalaureate, very challenging program. Not really my educational philosophy, but it, it's it's legit. Okay, hmm. and it's it's one way and it's one place in America where you can, to some extent, approximate the rigor that you get in a traditional certain kind of academic high school in continental Europe. So you're getting that attacked. All you're doing is fighting to keep your IB program, or you're fighting to keep your AP classes and the good teachers that you have that are teaching those things. Are these kinds of programs under attack in Europe right now? Like in um, France? Uh, France is a whole different thing because France, French and German education is, is, ha, has always been, and this is what you get in more homogenous societies. Cause you don't get this like discussion of race around differing educational outcomes. So, it's more of a class discussion and people are more comfortable saying, my father's a doctor. I will go to the academic high school, the lycée in France or the gymnasium in Germany. Right, right. And I will be a doctor or a professor or something. My dad is a car mechanic. I'm going to go to the Realschule and then I'll do an apprenticeship and then I'll be good to go at 18. It's not a big deal. The issue in France is that one of the things that French culture, French education has always tried to do is to convey what it means to be French. That's a big problem for people who are Algerian Muslims. <laughs> and so France, France really is at a kind of existential breaking point yeah. that maybe if people are really interested in this, let us know. And I will do an entire episode on I haven't because 
the stuff that I do with America feels weird enough and I feel like you should know it. But if you want me to do France, I can, but that's also French politics. It has a really different tone than ours does because they are much less ashamed of being French and they teach toward being French. And the problem is Algerian Muslims don't want to right, be French. Right. So there's, there's this new populist nationalist Frenchness showing up, right? Amongst well, some young people there. Yes, it's always been there. Is that the Yellow Jackets? Is that what that is? The Gilets Jaunes are, that's populism. The nationalism I'm saying is in the education system in the same sense that people from Texas may or may not know that they get a lot more information about Texas in their public education system historically than almost any other state does. And that has something to do with how proud people are to be from Texas. To be in that state, right. Yeah, exactly. If if people from Arkansas or Oregon got the same amount of education about their state, they'd probably care a lot more too. So France has that, that is now being politically positioned. It used to just be assumed sort of like the pledge of allegiance in America. And then I I guess I always wonder how the UN ties into all of this, given that uh, Davis, as we've talked about, seems to be the real driving power intellectually behind all of this kind of, universal culture movement. Um, I don't know. How, is, that, is that right if I say that? The, you know, the Yankee agenda that we're talking about in the public school system here in America yeah. is part of the Davis 2030 global movement. Is that right to say that? Um, not official. Not like, like hands-on, but like that's, that's the spirit at work. It's using that. The, the, original, the original intent of the various predecessor organizations to what becomes the UN after the Second World War are all have this note of universal idealism that you also get in the progressive education movement, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is a certain, which is, you know, which is Dewey. So go back and listen to whatever number episode that is. The, the listeners know way more about my own stuff than, than, right. I do, than I that's do. That's the way it goes. Yeah, that's great. And that progressive education movement is a step into secularization of American education, which is also a different understanding of what we're training people to be, let's say spiritually or politically or philosophically. There are all kinds of links, both personal and ideological between that and a desire for, let's say, world peace or world disarmament, some of it understandably driven by the First World War. The big difference with the UN is that I really think that the world is founded on a different setting or a different footing after the Second World War than before it. And this is symbolized by putting both the Germans and the Japanese on trial for for carrying out wars. Notice that if you go back and you look at the Nuremberg trial, that is not primarily about what's going to be called by the 1970s in English, the Holocaust. Holocaust, right. It's actually about carrying out a war, which is also Hmm. why the Japanese are put on trial for it. And that means that a nation that prosecutes that war, including the Soviet Union, which killed at least 10 million of its own citizens before the Second World War started, gets to sit in judgment over another war for carrying out what was historically understood as a normal process that nation states engage in, which is war periodically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. That war is something more like the weather and you simply cope with it. And you don't on, sit I, in... I got to stop though, while all yeah. the American liberals scream about how wrong you are. And yet we're in what three wars right now. 
<laughs> have been for a long time. <laughs> right, right. Right. But like if if you if you fought a war with somebody, you don't sit in judgment over the war in the same sense that if I right. if I fight a storm, I don't sit in judgment over the storm. I just cope with it. I don't have to like it at all, but I, I can't I mean it would be absurd for me to say no, it cannot snow anymore in the Midwest. No, never again. I can't. That's just, that's absurd, right? Yes, the, the Greta so, Thunberg approach to war and peace. And Right. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that you can see things like this even in the League of Nations, which comes out of the First World War. But really, uh, things like the UN or the education system after the Second World War, and really in America since the 1960s, are really different things than anything that we that we've seen before because they're attempting to do and control way more than anyone did before. And so the new deal then harnesses public education, right? As part of this? I mean is is this not all kind of the same ball of wax? I think the new deal the new deal makes possible both the way that America engages in the second world war and the notion that if I live in some obscure place, or if I live in a not so obscure place, let's say I live in a suburb next to New York City, that the main force in my life is going to be what happens with the federal government. Right, right, right. That's, that's, so the... really, that's really the distinction. And there are, there, are, there are things that come before that in American history, including, especially during the Civil War, the notion of having a direct income tax imposed by the federal government and a military draft. Okay. Those are new, but one of the significant things about what happens after the civil war is that they both, at least until the first world war go away. Hmm. So I would say that although you get, you get the amendment to the constitution that permits the income tax, the federal income tax during and after the first world war, you get the Federal Reserve, you get a draft in the First World War. The New Deal is what I think makes those things permanent and normal right. in American life. Right. Similar to how if you go back and you look at, you know, swine flu vaccinations during the 70s, you can actually see a lot of the same talk that we get today right that now. feels weird. Yeah. And exactly. they ran out the test and then they ran out the full program. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not unprecedented, but the idea, the idea, especially post-World War II, and this is why people that some of whom are remembered, some of whom are forgotten, this runs all the way from what Justin Raimondo called the old right, capital O, capital R. You can go look those guys up, John T. Flynn, Garrett Garrett, Robert Taft. Also people that some people, listeners will know, like Russell Kirk. This is why when they're actually living through many of them, the 1950s, okay? The 1950s, they're saying America is a moral wasteland. It's horrible. People are zombies. Okay. Hmm. That's why they're saying it because they can see these revolutions, especially in things like propaganda, media, and education. They lived them. And so they, they know how different the world was before these things. A lot of them are going to say, well, you have to go back before the First World War to know. But even before the Second World War, how different things like education were. It shows you how much pride I think America was able to generate in its mythology, though, mm -hmm. yeah. that people are so reticent to step away from their trust in it. So so what I just wrote down again for me now is the most important thing you've said today, which is that the federal government does not matter. And that the more <laughs> the more that any individual yeah. human can believe yeah. that. And yeah. then just act appropriately, not right. to break laws, but to realize that it doesn't impact them 
very often. Uh, yeah. Or the way that it does, you can do nothing about it. And so right. you have those two places, right? So it ultimately does not matter. And the goal of the current federal government in America is to convince you that it does. That's how it maintains control. More as story than as a gun. Granted, they right. got guns. Right. But right. it's the story that maintains control. And the more you can believe that they do not matter, pray for their goodness by all means, right? But like, sure. it doesn't impact you. Go live your right. life. The better off you're going to be in your own, what, society, culture, worldview, the things we're talking about. Develop, you know, Carving out your hollow niche for sanity in the midst of the storm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And that is what I think is so interesting about the Amish story with education, because a lot of people think of the Amish as kind of uh, like just a little piece of the past somehow preserved in the present. But with education, as with many other things, the Amish actually used to do something totally different than what they do right now. And uh, they used to drive cars, but even after they stopped driving cars, they still sent their children to public school. Now, public school, where the Amish lived in Pennsylvania, Ohio, mostly in the mid 20th century, Wisconsin is where they would get actually take it all the way up to the Supreme Court in the early 1970s. Public school simply meant a one room schoolhouse under local control still in many of these rural districts. What happens after the Second World War already and continues down to today is consolidation. That is bringing rural children into increasingly larger schools, even if that just means, you know, the closest town that has 500 people instead of 50. But you're busting 40 minutes in the morning in to get it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to be away from their family pretty much all day, starting at the age of five or six, maybe pre-K at this point. And the Amish said, no, that's too much. The kids are away too much. They're at school too much. They're, they're gone too much. We don't know what's going on there. Some of this is connected. Some of it is connected to the increasing hostility, even in rural areas, between what is taught in the school and what is believed. Although even growing up, I grew up in a pretty rural part of Pennsylvania. I was actually taught, and I was not a Christian at the time, but I was taught in biology class. This is the teaching on evolution the teacher saying, this is the teaching of evolution. This is what Darwin said. This is how he proved it. I don't think that's right, both because I'm a Christian and because I think it's just doesn't make any sense. Here's why. (laughs) Okay. Now he got away with that because of where this was. Probably the guy that succeeds him won't try to do that. Yeah, no, probably not like now. Right. Yeah. See, 1992, I would have been in my biology class at Grossmont High School, La Mesa, California, public system. And the prof said almost the same prof, not prof, teacher, yeah. Can I get his name? No, I can't. It's almost the same thing. Right? Yeah. And he just kind of sat there and said, you know, here's what I'm supposed to teach you. I'm not sure I buy it. No. Right. And right. It was, I, I was stunned at the time, but now you're right. Could they even? Would, no one would <laughs> right. even try. Yeah. Somebody, somebody would be coming down on them. So as long as public school means a one-room schoolhouse for four or five months a year, especially when it's cold, and you're teaching reading, writing, arithmetic, Pledge of Allegiance, you have a Bible reading at the beginning of the day, the Amish are like, that's fine. Not yeah, a big right. deal. Yeah. Okay. So once you get consolidated, it's it's because of consolidation. It's not even anything specifically ideological, really. Once you get consolidation, the Amish say, no, we can't send our kids there. And they don't immediately have a solution because they have no history of parochial schools as Catholics or Lutherans right, or right. many other groups did. And so they're effectively, some of them are kind of doing homeschool. This is like the 50s and 60s. It's the 30s in Pennsylvania because the the clash happens earlier there. And homeschooling is totally illegal 
<laughs> for most of the 20th century in basically every American state. So there's kind of no solution right away. <laughs> the two things that happen are one is Amish fathers are willing to go to jail. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Okay. They're willing to go to jail to keep their children out of the school because they think it's wrong. I'm just going to throw skin in the game there again as a concept. Total skin in the game. Total skin in the game. And there is an entire committee started by non-Amish. The Amish call them English. That's everybody else who is an Amish. Gentiles. The Amish, <laughs> the Amish Religious Freedom Committee. It still exists today. Huh. And it exists to, in. I mean, it it's basically, it's not just that they carved out their own niche. It's that other people are like, this is a good niche. They should have that niche. You see how that's how powerful that is. And so they're willing to go to jail. And eventually this turns into a Supreme Court case called Yoder v. Wisconsin, which ensures a certain, this is why we said last episode, religious liberty is such a powerful claim, hmm. a certain liberty on the basis of this is my religion. And the Amish can say with a straight face, it's my religion that my kids are not physically allowed to go that far away from hmm. my farm for the entire day. Hmm. And look, I back it up because I don't go that far away from my farm. This is COVID proof stuff, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the negative part. It's, I mean, it's positive. It's a great development, but it's negative in the sense that they get the freedom from the system. The thing that they do is really interesting. Because they don't say, okay, let's make it all up. They just take the, the Yankee one-room schoolhouse and they just recreate it for them. Hmm. That's what Amish schools are, to which almost all Amish kids throughout the United States now go, but was not the case 50 years ago. So they have a parochial school system that is now pretty much universal because of this existential crisis. One room schoolhouse though? One room schoolhouses? It is a one room schoolhouse. Right. So it's district by district by district. So where there's a lot of them, you're going to see a lot of them. But you're not. So what, what I want to emphasize there though, is uh, especially for maybe, you know, our, the listeners that come from my background, um, this is not the Lutheran Church, Missouri State parochial school system. This is nothing like it. And uh, to, to what you, if you were to advocate trying to look like this, it would mean yeah. dismantling what we currently think of as education in the Missouri Synod. Okay. This is, this is the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod schooling system up to about 1920. But that change and this is, was radical and yes. sweeping, right? Yes. Yeah. And if you are a Lutheran listening to this, I'm happy to go into this more. It's kind of not the folk that we have kind of yeah. This is where I get to talk about nuclear disarmament treaties. Okay. So I don't do Lutheran stuff as much here, but I'm happy to talk about it personally and we can do it on discord yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. Is, I bring it up the, because, because we're, li they're, they're listening yeah. in here. Right. Yeah. And I just want to make sure that though there's a very pro school movement still within the Missouri Senate. Yes. And I want to make sure that they don't think you're on their side <laughs> because, because what they're doing is they're trying to maintain something that can't be maintained. And the Amish didn't want what they're trying to maintain. Yes. And we're calling uh, that at times like our lifeblood. That's why it matters and why we should have that conversation elsewhere. Sorry for yes. interrupting you as you, as yeah. you will. But, but, but no, I mean, you're, you're, you're right in the sense that I am not on the side of continuing to have an expensive school system that is like public education and indeed teaches Dewey's philosophy of education yeah. in order to be certified to teach in that system. I am completely in favor. I mean, I run a Lutheran school. It just happens to be thought of as a homeschool by the state of Indiana. Right, right. If you are a Lutheran, you should support Lutheran schooling. The question is, how can that be accomplished? Mm -hmm. 
One really good way is homeschooling. Another really good way is the way that we used to do, which was effectively exactly what the Amish figured out they needed to do. Right, right. We should maybe just add also that in that case, the teacher during the week was in pre-1920s Missouri Senate, the pastor. Uh, very often, the pastor himself very, would very, be the one yes. doing the teaching. And so yes, there often. was a very tribal reality going on. Totally, here. totally. And and the notion of institutions in our church body should be supported in and in as much as they reflect the actual thing that unites us, which is who we are in Christ, both in what we teach and in what we do, how we live. And that is why they had the loyalty that they did and that mm-hmm. they still do to some extent, because either the pastor or some man who gave up four years of his life to move to either Seward, Nebraska or Addison, Illinois, later River Forest, would train specially to teach your children to stay in the tribe and to love the tribe and to support the tribe because it was God's tribe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's why. And that is the power that the Amish have now because they learned that they couldn't hold themselves together while attaching to a tribe that was teaching their children to leave their tribe. So if the path forward is wherever you are, whatever your tribe is, you got to become Amish. Right. <laughs> That's what I guess. Yes. No, yes. But, but we need to learn from, so, <laughs> so I say it, you know, right. Apart yes. from the whole synecdoche, whatever. Yeah. You, you do have to see that they realized long ago, you got to get off the train. Yep. And so you got to figure yeah. out how are you getting off this train? Yeah. One way or yeah. the other, or you're on the train, man, get used to it. Yeah. Yeah. You are in the automobile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, by that, we don't mean like, you know, hey, uh, automobiles are categorically evil. Blah, blah. I mean, the Amish aren't even, they're not even saying that. I'm not about to go back and live off the land tomorrow, right? That that ain't tomorrow. it. Tomorrow. Maybe, maybe the day after that. But yeah, right, exactly. But that as a if you want your group to survive, you have to carve out a, mm. a way for it to survive. And probably the biggest thing besides the family where we're going next besides the family is how you educate the people in the family throughout their lives, but especially when they're little and impressionable and you can't delegate that to anybody else. Now I'm completely with you on that. And that's definitely where we're going. But I think before either of those two points, you have to believe you have a group and that that would be what white people in general are not allowed to do today, except for your family name. And so grab that one before it's gone. (laughs) <laughs> just saying yeah. and you know how how you begin to then discern how that name might expose you to something that's more than white i'm yeah. scottish for example that can also help but you have to believe then that there is something worth preserving you you have to believe right. you are a tribe and right. i'll say again the longer you're plugged into the matrix and just absorbing their archetypes the less you will be a tribe you will be instead yeah. a hodgepodge of branded slogans that they've sold you and you've paid for it because you think it's an identity but it's yeah. in fact a carbon copy of you know, whatever they're they're gonna pitch all over the world. Every time I go to Hobby Lobby, they've they've brought in new stuff that I thought I imagined someday I would create. Now either they're <laughs> just really clever, or I'm letting the world tell me how to think in the future. Like they're 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 leading us in this. Does that make sense? Like like yeah. this year the style will be this, and we'll leave right. the seeds for next right, year right, for right. the style to be this. I'm pretty sure that's been going on for a long time, right? Right. So anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. You have to believe well, you have a group. You have to believe yeah, you have a group. Yeah, you do. You do. And if your group is actually recognized. So in the case of 
we're been, we've been talking about the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, even where it's recognized and it's allowed to exist legally, and it would be really hard to like just abolish it legally, right? In the same sense that, yeah, they're, they're trying to abolish whiteness, which just means white people, really, let's be honest. Even where your group is recognized, do not let that group be, be just corroded by being forced to feel bad about itself, which is being used in the case of whiteness in the LCMS, but they do this in all kinds of groups that are, I mean, the Southern Baptist Convention is a lot less white than the LCMS, and they still find things to yell at themselves about each other and to destroy each other. And this is part of what COVID has done to all kinds of groups. Don't let your group be attacked and your souls be assaulted by the system. And then people who are really just echo, echo chambers for the system within your group. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So in the LCMS, we have Lutherans for racial justice. They tell me the same things that Ibram Kendi tells me, except they try to tell it to me in more Lutheran terms. So I feel bad in Lutheran terms instead of just in anti-racism Ibram Kendi terms. Yeah, but that's then the they, point they, of that. They, they got a they got a job then, though. Right. So yeah, they, they, they have they, a job. They, they can get paid to do it. Uh, but you, you're, <laughs> you're exactly right, though. And then that's where try to try to put this in like dogmatic terms to realize your tribe has an orthodoxy and that yeah. there is a heresy and that the one who brings the heresy is the wolf to the flock yeah. and that the wolf yeah. must be driven away this is not yeah. this is not christianity just by itself and and this is not this is not wrong either so like no. now you're not supposed to you're supposed to like be friends with the wolf reform the wolf you know realize the wolf's misunderstood and that's again a mental hurdle i think for the modern white man at least uh, yeah. to have to reckon with is that there's there's good and there's bad, and our tribe is not based on color, but it is based on who we are, virtue, and that someone who comes in and wants to change that because what the yes. federal government or whoever else says is different, like no, right. we have right. the right to say right. no. Right, and and they use the mechanisms of making you feel bad for being cisgender or white or whatever you are that is unprotected shame and they're going to use that mechanism that very same psychological mechanism to make you feel bad for believing the things that you do that do concern your eternal soul and they'll use it even within your group and they'll have echo points within your group that will tell it to you so it sounds more credible because it sounds like it's coming from the inside the amish deal with the same stuff but if you don't want to be part of the group you just leave. Right. That's okay. Please leave. It's better for everybody if you do than if this just gets ugly. Right? We, swear, we swear we're not mad. We promise. We're not well, mad. You just yeah, need to go. I mean, I mean the, also the idea that you would ever be passionate about orthodoxy and you would want to defend it to the extent of going to jail or losing your life is supposed to be silly. The only way that I'm allowed to be passionate like this would be in defense of some oppressed minority. But since I'm speaking for the average Missouri Synod Lutheran who just wants his kids to stay in church, that's understood to be wrong or irrelevant or stupid. I'm going to call the average Missouri Synod Lutheran who just wants his kids to stay in church an actual bona fide minority, like super minority. <laughs> yeah. Dead pan yeah. serious, there you man. Go. Yeah, super you're right. minority. No, you're right. We're about to right. be, you know, we're going to go out of existence here, it would seem. Um, and when we don't, it'll be a tribute to the resurrection of Jesus. This is a brief history of power with the two white guys, Doctor Adam Coons. Yeah, anything else you want to say this this uh, today to close, close it up? No, we got we got. They can listen to this twice. Uh, we got plenty. <laughs> Next week we're doing the family. Next week we're heading the family. Which oh, that's interesting. So I will say this: 
we are looking at our governance as a congregation, formerly being a very large congregation, now not as large, and but mm-hmm. survived and landed. And now we have to figure mm-hmm. out how to govern ourselves without, you know, 35 board position, positions yeah. and all this stuff. And I was looking at the 1928 revised version of the 1888 Constitution, which nice. I would love to go back to directly yeah. almost. It's just so <laughs> much more easy. I mean, really, yeah. you can it's, – it's, it's streamlined. But as Article 12 or something was on education, Lutheran education, and it said – it's the only thing in the document I found I, I blatantly disagree with. It said that the, the, best, the best place to raise a child is in the school, uh, the Lutheran school. And I, I wanted to cross it. I didn't. I respected it as a document. <laughs> but it's the family, right? The, the, place, the place of education before it's the school must be the family. Educators, I've, I've worked in schools. Educators always say that the kids who succeed is because their family supports them in their schooling. There's no question that family yeah. support is where education begins. And anything that a school system will do is going to reflect what's being put in on the other side at home. Yeah. So yeah. to move yeah. into family as, as the primary learning place right is really important really really important yeah i mean i i educate professionally and i can only do so much that the guy who is going to be a pastor that his father or his mother or his grandpa or his home pastor those people are way more important than i am no matter how much he enjoys my classes or whatever and so that's why we're going into family from here and then finally in this kind of little series into finance and money after that, because I see that as that has determined the family and the shape of the family for a very long time. And we want to talk about how and why that is and how and why maybe it, it doesn't have to be so, but we're doing family next time because it's just, it's more important than any schooling you could ever receive. Right. I mean, and it's not an accident that the Greek word for home is, is economy, right? Yeah.